The Midwife Crisis Podcast will touch on sensitive topics regarding the human body, sexuality, pregnancy, and all aspects of women's health care and may not be suitable for all listeners. Hi, I'm Kate. And I'm PR. And this is season two of The Midwife Crisis because it's not just you. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, Alvin, a current midwifery student and all-around wonderful person. I've, I've seen him at work. Um, thanks for joining us, Alvin. Welcome, Alvin. And if you wouldn't mind sharing with us your pronouns and also a little bit about yourself. Perfect. So I'm Alvin. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to meet both of you. Uh, my pronouns are he and him. Uh, and what was what else were you going to ask me? Just a little bit about yourself. Tell us, you know, whatever you're comfortable sharing. Sure. Uh, so I'm Alvin. I'm actually a student nurse midwife and a future woman's health nurse practitioner. Um, I came into the work about six years ago, um, and um, I have been involved in women's health or birth work ever since. How did you come into the work? So that is a very long story, but I have, uh, I, so I'll share it. Yeah. But, uh, I, well, I used to work in finance. I've worked in finance for a very long time as my first career. And, and then I decided to transition into something a little bit more aligned with my own worldview and what I'm interested in doing. Um, I also had some family history uh, uh, with my mother who had some health issues. Um, so all combined with all of that, I decided to join um, or to start to work in women's health as mm -hmm. well. And I was a doula for a very long time, a nanny. Oh, um, awesome. So both of those things kind of led me into the birth work or birth world um, and also a yoga teacher. So a lot of things oh, kind of wow. led me to this, this line of work. Very nice. We have a number of emails that we've received from midwife students around the world, we'll mm -hmm. have to say, from Great Britain and Australia, different places. And they've always, they're always curious about our journeys into mm -hmm. midwifery and how we got into it. And we talked about ours in earlier episodes. I don't know if you got a chance to have a listen or not. But um, what are the barriers that you see facing student midwives today? For myself or? Yeah. For yeah. you. No, no, for you. Uh, so a lot of it is, I think, um, the educational system is very complex, and I think some students have a hard time navigating the educational system in order to be able to even access the, the, the master's level requirements mm -hmm. in the United States for certified nurse midwives. Um, and also, of course, uh, the cost of our education in the United States as well. Yeah. Um, and also just how many paths also there is to midwifery. You have CPMs, you have CMs, and you have CNMs. And each state also has its own requirements in terms of how you become a midwife. And the scope of practice is also different um, in terms of whether or not you have supervision or not have supervision in different states. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, so what have your like personal hurdles been as far as you sort of coming into this journey? Um, and then also PR had added what what highlights like what are what have been the things that have been really challenging for you? And what have been the things that, you know, your yays at the end of the day? So I, I think that I've talked to many male midwives or midwives that uh, identify as male or, or their sex is, is male. Um, and, uh, and I don't think most males actually come into the profession thinking at 16 that you would be interested in birth work. That is, mm -hmm. I have to say, not our societal um, predisposition for, for men mm -hmm. in, in the United States. Right. Um, and I've worked overseas as well. Um, and it seems to be across the board, men do not get into women's work or birth work mm -hmm. uh, generally. Um, 
But uh, I think the interesting thing about midwives who are men and who decide to come into this profession, uh, they all have stories. Their stories are very, there are multiple reasons why we joined the profession and a lot of influences by a lot of great women also, or those who identify as women or those who have uteruses, um, who, who are, who kind of, kind of, kind of introduce us to the, um, to the profession. In my case, um, my family has a lot of matriarchs. So in my family, a lot of, um, so so if people don't know I'm Asian American. Uh, so in my family, women are very much into the the whole birthing, uh, raising mm -hmm. children sort of side. Um, and the men generally don't get involved in that side of of the of the work of of raising children or or taking care of children. Um, traditionally, uh, that obviously changes with uh, with with time and as we progress as a society. Um, but uh, but I had a lot of influences in that space and also a lot of uh, uh, influences in my personal life as well. Mm -hmm. How has your family reacted to you being? you know, going into birth work, out of finance into birth work? <laughs> so my father was initially quite resistant. So uh, I used to work for uh, a large financial company on Wall Street. Um, so the transition was jarring, I guess, to say the least, to my family, especially to my father. Um, he, it, he, he, the question in his mind is more about job security. Like, okay, you gave up your uh, health insurance, your title, your retirement plan, your 401k. Mm. Um, and then what and then now you want to go into something that is completely different because my degree was also not in biology mm -hmm. or chemistry or psychology or anything to do with the sciences. So I had to go back and take all those classes again mm -hmm. before I would be even eligible to mm -hmm. apply to a certified nurse midwifery program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, do you have other? Well, that's interesting because I, too, was in finance before I became a midwife and uh, some of the same reactions Although, you know, as a woman, it was more accepted mm -hmm. that I would want to do this. I think that there's many people who start, who are in midwifery, who didn't start in midwifery. And I think specifically, actually, in the program that you're in and the same program that, that PR had, had done, mm -hmm. um, it sort of facilitates that, right? So mm -hmm. you're able to sort of start the journey from the very beginning. Yes. Um, so whereas the program I did, which was Frontier, you had to sort of already be um, a nurse and you had to sort of have some birth background and mm -hmm. things like that before you could start the midwifery program. So um, I don't know. I think that's interesting. Yeah, I had done some work in women's health, but it was on the GYN side mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. supporting women in abortion clinics and that kind of thing. But um, my degree was in Latin American history, <laughs> so that doesn't have anything to do with any of that. So I, too, had to go back and do sciences before I could. And folks were like, you have a family, you have a husband. Like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Yes. Do you remember what your turning point was? Like, was there like one day you were just like, like, I don't know, banging away at the keyboard and you were just like, what am I doing? Or... Uh, so it, it, so there was kind of divergent path. So I, I was working in Hong Kong for a very long time. I spent oh, cool. nine years of my own banking or finance background in Hong Kong working there. And then um, I decided to leave and resign from the company. And then I took a year off uh, to kind of think about what it is I want to do and travel and see all the people that I couldn't see while I was still working in finance. Mm -hmm. PR probably knows that it's long hours, BlackBerry, and you really don't uh, get much of a personal life, mm -hmm. uh, especially as you rise the ranks a little bit um, and then uh, and when I came back I was originally going to be a yoga teacher and I mm -hmm. did become one um, I did get certified and then I added uh, pre and postnatal yoga teaching to oh, my certifications nice. and then it's actually through
through a, that group of women and men, uh, some men, um, and that kind of led me to birth work in general. Oh, cool. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's that's fascinating. This is uh, an exciting conversation for me because I'm learning so much more about you and just about the different scenarios. We have so many diverse scenarios as to what brought us into the business and Mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Are you friends with other male midwives? Uh, Yes, actually I am. Uh, The the PR, and I think you both know that the population of midwives who are men or who identify as men is very small, Mm -hmm. at least within the American College of Nurse Midwives, which is our professional body. Right. Um, I think at the moment there are about 90 that mm-hmm. are listed uh, as active members inside the um, uh, the roster at the moment, I think. And I think even a couple years ago when I was looking at the statistics, it was actually still higher. It was over 100. Mm-hmm. So I think the, the number of uh, midwives who identify as men are actually going to, is, is actually shrinking, it, actually. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. okay, gotcha. What do you think is the biggest um, misconception about male midwives? Um, or, or in your personal experience? Because we always um, emphasize that we're not speaking for everyone. Yeah. I'm not speaking for the black and Latinx population. <laughs> She's not speaking for all the queer population. So, um, you know, just in your experience, what's been the biggest misconception about you, uh, about you and your practice? Well, well, the first thing is that they always think I'm the doctor, right? So mm-hmm. so that's always yeah. been the thing that happens whenever I walk into a birth room. Or even when I was doing my first year as a nurse, mm-hmm. uh, it was mainly as uh, I, ha- I could have a 30-year uh, pre- professional preceptor that's been working for 30 years. And they would still, I still remember one incident where they said, you know, uh, what time do you think you're going to schedule my surgery when I walked in with my preceptor, actually, oh, wow. that one time during mm-hmm. my first year. And I was like, no, 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 this is, you're, this is my preceptor. You should be speaking to her <laughs> um, and also in the birthing room as well uh, they've yeah. also generally identified me as the doctor and outpatient as well they've actually said hi doc how are you thank you doc for my injection or something like that and generally the misconception is I am a doctor not mm-hmm. not a nurse not a nurse midwife mm. it's kind of interesting because I my experience is very different and this is kind of what we address the intersections in this podcast um, I went into a patient's room and she said um, my empty trays. My, I'm done with mm. my eating. You can just clear that out now. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, I'm from your OB practice and I came to examine you mm-hmm. and set you up for discharge. And she just said, "Ooh, sorry. Mm. <laughs> and then her, I will say that this woman was, she was a black woman, which, you know, it's interesting. And her husband was white and he came in the room and he said, so doc, how's she doing mm. right away? And I just thought, what is happening here? Yeah. I don't understand what's happening here. You know, I get a lot from my patients, especially now that I'm focused more on the comprehensive gynecology side versus the um, obstetric side. I get a lot, how old are you? How long mm. have you been doing this? Are you really okay to do X, Y, and Z? You yes. know, especially as I dive a little bit further into menopausal care, mm-hmm. into, you know, doing things like pessaries and things that we typically think of as, you know, an older uh, an older gynecologic issue, right. those patients tend to be really hesitant with me. And I think also probably my appearance, you know, right. because I always mm-hmm. have colored hair and I have visible tattoos and right. funky accessories and whatever. I think people tend to sort of like, age me out that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ageism, it's a, it's a thing. <laughs> Pretty soon it's going to be for me. Haven't you, uh, you want to go get someone who can hear me? <laughs> Ma'am, do you need a wheelchair? <laughs> <laughs> do you need a hearing aid? It's fine. I'm good. 
I'm happy. I get the job done. Oh, yes. I've actually never been told that I look too young to to practice. And actually, some of my fellow students have actually had that issue. Like mm. some older uh, older uh, women or, or uh, people with uteruses are the ones that actually said, I, I don't really want to be speaking to you about my sexual history mm-hmm. or I don't really want to talk about contraception with you. Mm. Um, because in my program, the and I think maybe PR would remember, maybe I don't know if it's still the same thing with uh, when you were in the program, um, that there was a very huge age range in, t- yes. in terms of the midwifery students. Yes, it was. And I fall in the in the much older category mm-hmm. and the, there are much younger individuals in mm-hmm. our program as well. So they've had stories that said that, you know, um, uh, some of this, uh, some of their patients won't see them because mm-hmm. I just, I, you're, you're, my, you're the same age as my grandchild. I really can't yeah. be discussing my sex life with you. Mm, yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is interesting. You do what you have to do to get your patient very quickly we learn to get your patient comfortable mm-hmm. with you we've talked about this a little bit yeah. about how we have to sometimes vouch for each other and mm-hmm. so um you know pr has talked before about ble- being you know black and mm-hmm. having her friend who was a nurse on labor and birth who's white have to kind mm-hmm. of like get her in with the patient in yeah. that way yeah. um and i sometimes find i have to do the same thing as well, especially now that I'm doing some per diem call because I'm not the familiar midwife. Right. So this actually just happened a couple of weekends ago where, you know, one of my friends was the labor and birth nurse in the room and she had to sort of like earn my uh, my place in the room yeah. with the patient. Yeah. 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 In that case, my friend, she was like, we're friends. We travel yeah. together. <laughs> we both had met the patient apart. And the patient was very lukewarm to me. Mm-hmm. And then I went out and she said, aren't they delightful? And I was <laughs> thinking, eh. And so we went back in the room together and she caught on quickly. She was like, oh, we travel. And my son yeah. was in her daughter's quince. And, you know, she went on about a bunch of different things. And then they were, we were all one big happy family. So you do, you know, what without coming outside of yourself, of course, you do what you have to do to get comfortable mm. with the situation. And it's not to say that I get, you know, those kind of responses from white people or all black people, or I get it from everybody. Mm-hmm. I get it from from women or people with uteruses who say, I would rather see a man like, are, are you are you gay, by the way? Mm-hmm. No, but that, I don't understand. I'm really competent. I'll take good care of you. And then I get the Spanish speaking who will say, I want someone who speaks Spanish. Mm. And then I tell them I'm the only Spanish speaking person here. So do you want to see me or do you want to go somewhere else? Like mm. not in that kind of rude tone, but so, yeah, I, it's this this work we do is about meeting people where they are. Mm-hmm. Um, do you find that partners are averse to you being in the room, like as a male ever? Well, surprisingly, no, actually. They actually are very excited to actually have another dude, actually, oh. in their, in their, in, uh, to, to be in the room with them, actually. You got the dude cred. Yeah, the dude cred, um, <laughs> in the sense that they actually are a lot of partners, and even as a doula and now as a student nurse midwife, um, they're actually very excited to have someone to speak to, you know, that's mm-hmm. someone that can maybe understand or more easily relate to what they're going through, especially first-time right. fathers. Uh, a lot of them are very nervous. Right. A lot of them uh, say, I don't know what to do with my hands. What What do mm. I say? Mm-hmm. Um, if we're going to go into C-section, like, what, what do I wait here? Do I not wait here? Mm-hmm. How long is it going to take? How do I wear the bunny shoe, uh, bunny suit, you know, right. the bunny suit that right. you have to wear into the, the OR? Um, and also just helping them put on the booties. Like, they don't really know how the booties go or the bouffant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so helping them get prepared, and they appreciate your presence, it sounds like. Yeah, and the labor support as well. 
So if someone was to be averse, I mean, it sounds like you've had a really nice sort of welcome reception with your with your patient population. But like, tell us, because I'm curious about people putting up, you know, some some uh, barriers to that, like about people kind of wanting to not maybe have you in their care. So that's happened as well. And to, to, to preface it, I am actually very fine with, uh, with uh, patients who decided they do not want me in the room or mm. don't want to have me be part of their care team. Um, and that's, and I would say that as a student nurse midwife, that's happened about a third of the time when I'm an outpatient or even in IP where they would say, you know, I would prefer that, that I have a female provider, uh, or that, um, um, I don't really want a student to be checking my cervix when I'm in, uh, when mm. you're in the IP, mm -hmm. in the intrapartum space. Um, and that's also fine. There could be multiple reasons why. And I, and this is something that I learned as a doula that, you know, it's their choice, their body. And if they don't want me there, I do not take it personally. There will always be some other person who might be interested in the labor support that I can provide mm -hmm. or anything like that. And there could be a lot of trauma. A lot of individuals have a lot of trauma and a lot of history that, uh, that they might not even mention to me as a provider or future mm -hmm. provider mm -hmm. or as a nurse. And I have to be cognizant of that as well. Um, so there's a balance for me whenever I go into a room. I understand the privilege of being a male coming into a birthing space, but also I also identify with a lot of other um, groups or marginalized minority groups or communities as well. So that's an interesting intersection for me as both uh, as, a, as a nurse, as a provider, as a future provider, and as a male as mm -hmm. well, actually, inside the birthing space. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's that's interesting. We've kind of we're going to talk about what you, what as, unique aspect you bring to the role, and you are the conversation crushing is it. flowing, totally crushing to, it. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. Um, Kate, I wonder if you could share a little bit, do, or do you even feel this about um, sexism impacting you on your journey, or Alvin on your journey? And I just spoke to it sure, with me yeah. when people are asking me if I'm lesbian. If I were, it'd be okay. I'd still yeah. take good care of you. So so when I first became, because I'm a, I've talked to this too, but because I'm a white, straight presenting, you know, queer person, for a long time, I sort of wrestled with if it even had a place, like if my own sexual identity had a place in my care. Um, and so I think in the beginning of my career, I didn't speak to it a lot because I didn't feel like it impacted anything. And also I was sort of fighting against this ageism and mm -hmm. all these other things that were sort of on my plate. But what I found was, um, for me personally, it's super important for me to share um, if I think it's applicable. So I have a lot of patients who, you know, I'm opening up with, you know, share with me your pronouns. You know, are you interested in sexual partners at all? If you are, are they male? Are they female? Are they other? Like, are you monogamous? Are you not? You know, all these kind, kind of conversations that let them know that it's okay to share. Um, and I do think that then there's sort of a place for me sometimes. Sometimes there's not. Sometimes pe people are very comfortable in their situation and they don't want to talk about it. But I find that many people immediately, especially lesbians, like pick up on my vibes mm -hmm. because like that's kind of how it is. Mm -hmm. And so they'll just be like, oh, okay, yeah, like I can totally tell you definitely are interested in roller derby. And I'm like, mm -hmm. yes. You know, like, that's <laughs> like, it's just like that kind of stuff just, you know, is there. Um, so I think it does sometimes have a place, but I often 
think about uh, as far as when I think of male providers and when I think of also like maybe queer providers taking care of, you know, people of, of their, you know, preferred sexual population, you know, how do you separate those things? But for me, it's so different. Like I always joke that I could eat a sandwich while I was like delivering a baby because it's just like it's just something that you do. And even mm-hmm. though there's a lot of emotion in it, there's also just kind of like a, it's a Second separation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's a separation. So so for me, I don't think it's really negatively impacted. And if anything, I think it's positively impacted my care in many ways. But I don't know. What do you think? So for myself, I, I also rely a lot on nonverbal communication. So I do wear my pronouns on my badge mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I also carry the rainbow flag on my badge. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of different things just so that they don't never have to ask. They just have to look mm-hmm. and then they can decide whether or not they want to share their own pronouns or if they want to choose to share their sexual orientation or the type of partners that they have. It, it actually helps. I've actually had a couple of times inside um, during outpatient care mm-hmm. that when I walked in with my badge, they were initially very hesitant to have a male be mm-hmm. their provider or actually take their initial history. And they took a glance at my badge and said, oh, wait a second, this is uh, actually a safe space. And mm-hmm. that, that actually is, uh, and they became much more comfortable. And then they said, oh, and then at the end of the the uh, the, the visit, they would talk to my priest. I loved having him. He's great. Can I, can I see him <laughs> next time? And it's great. Wonderful. I'm glad that I could change some hearts and minds as well during the course of my, uh, of my profession or of my, during my work day as well, which is wonderful. I think that... Um Probably, you know, a year and a half ago, this might not even have been a question, but now we're finding um, that the Asian population is being subjected to a lot of bias and a lot of um, unhuman behavior, inhuman behavior, whatever that English word is. And so uh, can you speak a little bit to that? Yeah. So... For myself, I have two minds about that as well. So Asian American uh, violence against Asian Americans or racism against Asian Americans is not a a new thing, right? Right. I know that in the last year, it's gotten a lot more attention just because of the pandemic. But culturally, and I don't speak for all Asian Americans, because I also like to remind everyone that the Asian diaspora is very broad, right? Mm -hmm. When we talk about the model minority or the invisible minority, a lot of people do speak about, you know, the 80s and 90s immigration wave that brought a lot of East Asians Mm -hmm. to the United Mm -hmm. States. But that is not the only immigration population that came to the United States. There's the Laos, the Cambodian, Southeast Asians, um, and a whole bunch of different minority groups from the Asian diaspora that has joined us in the United States who might not have been as successful mm-hmm. in acclimating or assimilating into into the society. And of course, I think in some of your old podcasts, you spoke about you know the internment of the Japanese-Americans yes. during World War II, yeah, whether it was the Asian Exclusion Act of 1882, the Geary Act of 1892, and of course, the, um, the Great Railway that was built by a lot right. of the Asian-Americans. Right, that's what we talked about yeah. too, that people aren't getting... You know, that, that was in the episode where we talked about slave, enslaved people were not getting any credit for building the White House and right. Asians were mm-hmm. not getting any credit for building the rail system mm-hmm. in right. this country. Yeah. So I would say that overall, uh, it's interesting as in this particular time to be Asian American because also culturally speaking, we just don't, we don't normally speak up very much. That's mm-hmm. that's a more of a cultural Confucianism sort of thing. Like we like to bear like 
we like to be more reserved in general. And mm-hmm. we also see this in the birthing room as well. A lot of Asians would generally birth very quietly and everyone's always asking them right. what is wrong. Like nothing's wrong. They're just birthing quietly, which is how they were taught uh, right. in their culture as well. Um, so there was a lot of uh, interesting cultural aspects to that. But I, I digress. But um, the that, That's great. We're going to come back to yeah. that, actually, because yeah. I'm very interested in that. But no, keep uh, but but in terms of uh, but so therefore Asian American violence I think is much more it's much higher than I think that it would be because we don't report it as a as a culture or as a uh, as a as a as a race um, in general um, so so I think it's always happened but it's just gotten a little bit more uh, focused mm-hmm. in the last year and my own personal opinion is that uh, all minority groups or all marginalized groups kind of have to kind of band together and rise together and not just like single out one group versus another Mm -hmm. because I've also been told that I am not a person of color. So there has Mm -hmm. been a lot of discussion about that that definition, what defines you as a BIPOC or a person Mm -hmm. of color. Mm -hmm. So if I'm not a person of color, then what am I then in Mm -hmm. this current society, right? right? And how should I identify? And then if you say that we're separate from you, then do you still want us to support you? Mm -hmm. Um, Are there going to be Instagram posts about us? Is there going to still be Facebook posts about us? And generally, you will see more of that in the cities that have larger Asian populations, right? Here in New Haven, we don't have such a large population of Asian Americans or people who identify Asians. So, um, so, so there's been a lot of stuff happening in Los Angeles and Seattle, San yes. Francisco, New York, but not as much in other parts of the of the country where there's less of an Asian diaspora in their population. Mm-hmm. And you're right about the fact that um, the incidents against uh, Asians and Asian Americans is is not a new thing just like kind of um you know the george floyd was not the beginning of mm-hmm. people of, right. of black people being lynched and so um and th- th- i think that's a really important point for our listeners to hear that this stuff has been going on from way back and right. so um now that it's sort of coming to the fore it's a great opportunity and we should i've seen some um posts recently on the blm mm-hmm. um you know, movement that are like, you know, we have, we are including our Asian, you know, brothers and sisters because it's the same. It's just a different person. I wonder if the Asian population in New Haven, I know New Haven has one of the biggest um, gaps as far as like socioeconomic disparities in literally the country. Yes. Um, And so I wonder if part of that is I wonder if a larger population of Asian people in New Haven are like academics mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. in you know medicine and things where maybe that class change as well mm-hmm. has something to do with that. I, yeah. I hadn't even really thought about that there hasn't been a big you know sort of like movement for the um, Asian population in New mm-hmm. Haven. They, I guess there really hasn't. I there hasn't been mm. right. It's it's very interesting. Well, it also depends on if they identify as Asian American too, right? Because True. a lot of our, they're academics, right? They're coming mm-hmm. in from other countries right. to research. And we have the Yale-China relationship. Right. I right, think right. the, 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 um, I think the, the Yale-China at this business school as well as inside the, um, I, I don't remember what it's called. It's the Yale-China, like, it's on the. Is it on the undergraduate side? I don't remember. I don't remember. There's okay. the Yale-China Center or something right. like that. Right. I've seen yeah, it. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, why don't we take a quick break? Okay. And then we'll be right back with more with Alvin. Yeah, Thank you. This, this wonderful conversation. Thank you. Greetings, and this is 
Wine Time with Grown Ass Woman, an intergenerational conversation with Ife Michelle. I'm sexy. And Sharon Leanne. <laughs> you make me want to add a, a name. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure you hit us up. We want to hear from you. Um, again, our email is gawomenspeak at gmail.com. Okay, and we are back with the Midwife Crisis Podcast. Uh, we are here with our guest, Alvin. So thank you so much, Alvin. We've been having great conversation. Um, and we actually had just sort of delved into, uh, we were talking a little bit about racism. And I, I, we always talk about it sort of in the aspect of women's care, but also maybe sort of stereotypes and, and cultural differences in birth. And so mm-hmm. I was interested, um, Alvin, if you could sort of speak to that a little bit, because you had just mentioned a little bit about, um, you know, your sort of thoughts on Asian women birthing and what mm-hmm. that looks like. And and I'd love to hear more about that. Sure. So so again, even with amongst the so I'm I'm Asian American, but I identify as Chinese. So with even within China, there are uh, a couple of thousand dialects, and there's four major languages and one uh, one one official language is Mandarin. But we have four regional dialects, and then each village will have its own like village dialect as well. So mm-hmm. generally, when you go to China and you visit, uh, most people can speak at least two to three dialects in in general just to be able to communicate. But uh, the language is uh, uh, you can't understand each other. The written language is the same, but the spoken language is, ah. is different. So we each have our regional differences in terms of birth and our cultural traditions. We we have a lot of traditions that are very similar, but how they look when you go into each region or each village is also very different as well. So in some places, I would, as an example, um, Watermelon is not eaten during the uh, intrapartum period. Like mm-hmm. it's considered a cold food. And Asians consider the yin and yang in right. terms of our balance mm-hmm. when we are pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, and generally we like warm foods, you mm-hmm. know, to help nourish, you know, the the baby and the the mom and the blood and all the kind of stuff that, that kind of helps with pregnancy. Mm-hmm. So watermelon is contraindicated I guess to use a term from from <laughs> a our from, from our medical term in the sense that it's too cooling it mm-hmm. doesn't allow the baby or the fetus to thrive and mm-hmm. that is the thought behind why we don't have cooling foods when we're when we're trying to gestate right mm-hmm. we're trying to oh, wow. we're trying to help the baby grow to, mm-hmm. to gain like uh, fire you know energy you mm-hmm. know uh, to, to kind of quicken I guess you can yeah. say in some ways as well and, and then, quickening for people who don't know is um, uh, just so that uh, it's when the baby starts to move more right. and you feel more movement uh, with the with the fetus, uh, but in other parts of the of the of the of China, you have individuals who do sitting in periods. So we would say after the birth, you do not bathe, you mm-hmm. do not touch water, and you sit for thirty days, and your entire extended family comes and takes care of you mm-hmm. wow. generations. So the matriarchs in my family, and because I spent nine years in Hong Kong, I have a very large extended family there. I got to see a lot of my cousins be born. So mm. I was lucky enough to be able to be involved in the, the care. They would obviously shoo me away a lot of the time <laughs> because I'm still a guy. Uh, but they still, I get to see, you know, my aunt, you know, our, our grandparents would come and help bathe and take care and soups were, were, were cooked. Food was cooked, you know. Uh, we have our own little version of the donut, you know that uh, that um, that you that, sit on. That you sit on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do little rice bags, rice bean bags, mm-hmm. where instead of um, swaddling, we put that on the baby to give it a little bit of weight, so oh, that I the love baby that. 
Like yeah. a little baby weighted blanket. Yeah, it's like a little square mm -hmm. with a lot, a little bit of rice in it. And mm -hmm. you just basically have it on the baby while they're sleeping and the extra weight kind of soothes them. Mm -hmm. Just like when you swaddle and you kind of get right. the baby yeah. in tight. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that is so interesting and also beautiful. It is like, beautiful. I just, ugh, I, we have so many people here who desperately need that. We talk about it a little bit on our doula episode. Mm -hmm. um, and we did also do a little bit where we talked about postpartum care or sort of lack thereof um, right. on a microsode. And, and gosh, I mean, I think that sounds so beautiful and wonderful. I mean, because it's the fourth trimester. You know, mm -hmm. we always say right. that. It's yes, like you're not, yeah. your work's neglected. not done. Yeah. Right. And I learned a, a lot of, not a lot of it, because you are enlightening me with every moment. But um, some of this, as you know, as a practitioner going along, you kind of each person teaches you something. Yes. And so then the nurse would race in with the ice pack after, and and the patient was like, "No, I don't want that." Yes. Yeah. And I said to her, "No, it's the cold, hot cold. You can't." And they were like, right. "What? Or, what do you? Or they, how do you know that?" And I'm like, yeah. "Other patients told me, and right. they don't want that ice drink, like yes. exactly, yeah. That, yeah, that little cocktail of ginger ale and cranberry over ice." And they're like, "No, no. I don't want that either. <laughs> I want warm water." And, and then yeah. in the meanwhile, this was back when it, pre pre pandemic, when people could bring their families, then their little mom or grandma would be in the corner with like a container of of soup that they had mm -hmm. brought in from home. Mm -hmm. She's going to eat this. This is good for her. And yes. so it was really fascinating. I had no objection to any of it. <laughs> Clearly, if it's been working for all the people where you come from, and it's good. And I think that, you know, in this culture, this American, so to speak, culture, um, there's a hard time sometimes with other ways. Mm -hmm. um, and so some of that, um, that we're talking about with drinking cold drinks and ice on the bottom and stuff, it, it, some of it is not based on science. It's, yes. it's just based on what, you know, the culture thinks would be a good idea. And so um, I, I always try to inquire about that and find out what people would prefer and just give them what they prefer. Yeah. Unless they, you know, unless they're saying, I'm going to do something out outrageous and then that's going to harm everybody. So don't do that. But uh, short of that, I, I, I think that, you, like I said, we need to meet people where they are yes. and respect where they're coming from and what they, and, you know, it's really, it's really interesting on, especially on the labor floor, there is, um, you know, we have our patients who come in who are either Asian or Asian American, and they are very quiet. And they are, and I remember being like a novice midwife and having the nurse say to me, just watch her eyebrows. Um, oh. and I was like, really? And she's like, they're not, she's not going to say anything. Um, she's just going to be quiet. And I'm just saying, you're like a superhero. You don't have any medications. You don't have any, like, I'm so proud of you. And, and, uh, she said, just watch her eyebrows. Cause when you check her again, she's going to be far advanced. <laughs> and so that was something that I came to start looking at, like, look at, look for other signs, yes. just maybe just a little bead of sweat or something, maybe not even that, but just watch for other signs, other changes in behavior, because she's not going to present like a cisgender white woman from the U.S. Well, and that's so much of of birthing, too, and being in the birth space, right? So I think um, when we look at it from a medical perspective, we check cervixes and we look mm -hmm. at the clock and we see what the curve right. and the blah, blah, blah. Right. But, you know, when you go into the home birth space or the birth center space, some, some people have no exams at all. Yes. They go from... I'm, they come in and say, I'm having a baby, and then they right. have a baby, and they're, they never have a single hand in their vagina. And so, you know, we know that it's very possible.
helpful and successful to look at nonverbal cues and mm-hmm. nonphysical cues and allow people to do um, what needs to be done. Now, of course, we always speak to this as well. You know, not every single birth and not every, you know, baby and not every situation is going to be totally, quote unquote, normal or, you know, what's expected. Mm, right. um, and so sometimes interventions, of course, are needed. But um, I just was thinking about how I remember hearing about this sort of color change that happens on the lower back as women mm. um, get closer to pushing. Um, and it's something that a lot of people do like when women are laboring in a tub because they don't want to get in there and have to, you know, check them. They mm-hmm. can just kind of allow them. But anyone who's had a baby, PR and I talk about this all the time, you know, you can't, once that baby's coming, it doesn't matter what your cervix is, right. that baby's coming. <laughs> right, so. exactly. Yes. But yeah. So I would like to say then that food is a very big touchstone with a lot of cultures. So this is not just something that that is Asian or mm-hmm. Asian focused, but mm-hmm. food is a touchstone and is the center of a lot of family life, right? And mm-hmm. this is, and sitting in period is very common across all cultures, not mm-hmm. just the Asian right. diaspora, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of things that that we as midwives can can touch upon, right? Uh, and say, okay, my culture, you know, we sit, we sit for 30 days too. This is very common for us right. too. And then you can build that connection, which then leads to trust, which then leads to hopefully mm-hmm. a really lovely vaginal uh, like good physiological birth and mm-hmm. and a lot of that has to do with with starting there right where mm-hmm. with the connection first which builds the trust and they feed on each other right and sometimes it's it's just that and also a gut feeling that you know that you have this you know connection with this patient along mm-hmm. with some energy exchange and i'm going very esoteric now but but all of that stuff kind of combines into giving you know your patient you know a good birthing experience in yeah. my my limited experience no it's you're it, you sound like you're vastly experienced mm-hmm. because you're putting it all together to pre, to create a picture of what you would like to see for your for your clients and what the experience you want them to have. And like I'm always saying to, um, I, I say it a lot to the nurses too, she's not a seahorse. She's not going to have a thousand babies. Mm. We have to make sure that this experience, well, of course, she's not male. So let's start with that. Yeah. <laughs> but we have to make sure that this experience is, is as best as we can, something that's positive for her. No, it's not going to be, you know, a human is coming out of your hinterlands. So it's not going to be uh, a day at the beach, but let's make it um, uh, an experience that she will look back on and say, that was really fond. That wasn't some crazy yeah. ride that I wanted to just be dead on. I do have to say, even though this is sort of a side note, you can tell just by speaking with you that you were called to do this work. And I think we talked to um, many of our listeners that are wondering about transitioning into this work. And, and we talk to this a lot. This is not a job that you go into to make tons of money and get lots of sleep. It's, right. ju- no. it's just not. No. So um, listening to you speak is so, you know, it's just like my heart is growing because oh, you can yes. just tell that you are called to do this. And and that's, I think that's the most important piece. When I agree. I you. agree. It's like all the stars lined up with your, your, doula and your yoga and your finance and your family and it just all came together Mm -hmm. and then here you are Mm -hmm. yeah will you be finished soon so yes so i i'm i'm just waiting to go to integration so Mm -hmm. for those who are not in mood or free integration is the time where we have a i guess a mini internship or a fellowship Mm -hmm. is that fair to say kind of like a mini residency yeah yeah. mini residency in which we work full-time under a more senior midwife uh working as a student nurse midwife but still like doing the charting and the notes um and basically doing everything that um that uh, a midwife that is licensed to under their their purview and then we gain all that experience during 
during that four month, three month period. And then we go out into practice on our own then mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Very nice. We what um, aspect of midwifery most excites you? Like what what part? And I'm talking full scope, like yes. like menses through, you know, <laughs> menopause. <laughs> like what's from, what's the thing that really like gets you? From adolescent to almost dirt on your eyes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So it's changed. It's evolved, right? Like everything, nothing really remains static. And I, I don't know if this is the case with both of your practices, but it is with mine. So when I first started in in working in the birth world, uh, I started as a doula, like mm -hmm. I mentioned before, and it was always just obstetrics, always obstetrics, obstetrics. We'll catch, we'll catch those babies, right? Mm -hmm. And then with time, I actually have now grown more interested in the gynecological aspects of mm -hmm. it as well. And actually, it is uh, peri and postmenopause that I would like to focus upon uh, upon graduation. And mm -hmm. I think that if a woman has spent her entire life, you know, uh, being a woman and mm -hmm. have menses and also having babies, if they if she so chooses, mm -hmm. or uh, the person with a uterus so chooses to do so, um, then I don't think that she should have a difficult time during her her golden years, I guess, mm -hmm. yeah. in, in terms of the hot flashes, in terms of the discomfort, mm -hmm. or the, I guess, is it okay to say vaginal dryness or anything mm -hmm. else? Yeah, that yeah. Oh, you yeah. can say all of that. We have, we have an E for explicit, so you can yeah. say whatever okay. you want. Okay, <laughs> but all the, and some, and of course, some, some people with uteruses do not have any of the side effects of menopause, but of course, if they do, we would, we of course, want to be there to to make that transition easier. And I've and I've read the Women's Health Initiative one and two mm -hmm. studies, and that was what kind of kickstarted some of that, uh, mm -hmm. some of my interest in that particular area. Um, and also, my mom also had a part in that as well. So all of that has come together uh, to kind of kind of have that interest for me uh, in, in the birthing space as well. I you're, love that. I do too, and you're making me swoon because um, <laughs> I feel like that is an area that it's not, um, it's not, what, what's the word I want to use? It's just not like it's, it's underrepresented. It's not shiny yeah. and attractive. It's not yeah. sexy yeah, it's, for, for lack of a better word. Yes. Um, and so folks don't, they're not that interested per se in it. And we find even graduating that back then, I found that I, that was one of my weaker areas. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, yes. I didn't really get a lot of experience with that. And so um, it, it was kind of on the job training. And mm -hmm. I still feel like I'm learning things all the time. And also so much of what we learn has real life implications and is reflected from our real life. So just as you said, you had sort of been inspired by your family and their birthing and then your mom and her journey and things like that. I mean, I think that's totally that's totally true because mm -hmm. as we change, as we go through different seasons, I think we we do find different parts of the job that mean more to mm -hmm. us or mean less to us or that we want to learn more about. Um, but that's really huge because that's one area that we definitely need more you know yeah yeah i'm i'm thrilled i'm thrilled that that's what you want to do because i feel being in that population that that we are um kind of an afterthought almost and it shouldn't be you yeah. know i think you've left you've you're the wise women, I guess, us was uh, the midwives would say, right? Yeah. We have the maiden, you know, the mother, the, right. the the wise woman. So I think all three parts deserve our attention. Yeah, mm -hmm. and your 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 intent to practice in that area brings honor to being one of those wise women. And I think in this society, it's a little bit. I mean, we're getting better, and I think as long as you can see a trajectory, even if it's slow uh, to the toward the positive, that's really good. But um, we still have a lot of work to go about honoring our elders mm -hmm. and, and seeking their wisdom and then caring for them mm -hmm. in, a, in a proper way. So, um, yeah, that's really beautiful. Um, 
Do you want to talk a little bit about the work-life balance? Yeah. I mean, I we would definitely love to hear uh, how you're planning to and <laughs> how you have so far uh, maintained a work-life balance. That is a huge question we get from prospective midwifery students mm-hmm. constantly. Yeah. All um, the time. All the time. Um, and I don't know, you know, personally, if you have, you know, your own sort of small family mm-hmm. gr- crew as well. <laughs> um, Pierre and I talk a lot about our own, you know, partners, yes. former partners, children, mm-hmm. um, friends and family and how this job can really throw those things out of balance. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you have to reassess. So we'd love to hear how you plan on tackling that, how you're tackling it now. Mm-hmm. And yeah. So I actually don't have a family uh, and I probably don't plan on having one in the future. So I've always told myself that my family would be the patients I take care of and also my own friends and mm-hmm. also my colleagues will also be part of my family yeah. in that sense as well. As in children, you're saying? Yeah, uh, children. Have uh, well, well, I have a family, yes. But uh, <laughs> so all of that, I think... So also being part of the LGBTQI community, mm-hmm. you tend to make your own family in many, yes. many ways as well. So you, you generally have a family that 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 you're sometimes you're not born of, but are yeah. part of anyway. Right. Right. But so I, ha- I have the privilege of having both. Oh, so I have nice. both of that, uh, both support in that in both of those areas. So in terms of my work-life balance, I actually like night shift. I know a lot of midwives as they go <laughs> into their career, I mm. actually love working in the at night. What's when babies are born, when it's quiet, mm-hmm. when you actually have maybe a little bit more time to kind of sit with uh, the patient and labor with them and then quietly deliver like at four in the morning or something like that. So in terms of work-life life balance, um, I think that I would probably be be more inclined to give someone else a better work-life balance by taking their shift or uh, doing more night shifts oh for them. Gosh, uh, a dream. And, I know. <laughs> and covering for their holidays when they want to be with their families because not all of us were lucky enough to have our own children or would like to have our own children or have partners. So if I don't have one, then I've thought extensively about, okay, then I'll cover your Christmases or mm-hmm. I'll cover your Thanksgivings where uh, you want to be with your family and in the middle of the year when I need to go fly and see my family, then yeah. I would hope that you would cover my, right. my shifts as well. Right, right. And that is a huge part of being part of a midwifery mm-hmm. team mm-hmm. Um, and and even just an OBGYN team because you need, it's so important to work hard and play hard. So, mm-hmm. yeah. For sure. But you can tell also that he was kind of called, I'm, I'm a night owl as well yes. and I never Same. complained about night shifts. <laughs> and so that, that works out fine. But um yeah, I I did have, you know, children and had to kind of negotiate that stuff, but it's just really um kind and generous of you to say that you love this work and you are willing to um, you know, give to others, not just your your clients and your patients, but to your colleagues. Mm-hmm. Um to so that everyone can have a work life balance. I think that you're like a dream midwife. I know. What's happening? (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. That's that's a very big compliment coming from both of you. But honestly, it's just we we work as a team, right? It's a collaborative practice. And we talk about this a lot. And it's important that you do that for your colleagues and with your uh, friends. And I did have that burnout before in finance. Mm -hmm. It's very, very easy to burn out. And I'm more cognizant of that now in Mm. this second career. Uh-huh. What does self-care look like for you? Are you still practicing yoga? And um, what what other things do you do for self-care? So uh, for myself, yoga, yes, and meditation. So mm-hmm. I do meditate. I have malas. So I do, we do japa, a mantra. So we I, I do do that almost daily. Um, walks are great. You know, being able to speak with my own mentors, you know, my own mm-hmm. preceptors who kind of kind of support me along the way. Um, I think I think 
in time, uh, from my own from my own perspective, I, I think I required less support. I guess I don't know if that's the right word for it uh, in terms of my own personal life, just because I've always been very independent. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've just never really thought about. It. But I have friends, and I talk to them, and also in time, um, my 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 fellow students become my colleagues and my mm-hmm. peers, and they will then support me. Um, uh, when I when I have a question mm-hmm. about certain certain aspects of the practice, um, and hopefully with integration that will bring more knowledge and more understanding of what we do, um, so that I can better kind of balance, you know, um, okay, to, so I can speed up my charting a little bit here and maybe take some home, but then not spend too much time at mm-hmm. home doing that mm-hmm. as well. And I'm sure both of you have had those days as well. Oh yes, yeah. We actually, you know, I think you have the right the right outlook going into it. And I do encourage you to hold on to that so deeply. Hold it tightly. Because you sometimes get caught up in it and and you don't really get this time back and you don't want to burn out. You know, mm-hmm. we, we've talked to, mm-hmm. up to this extensively about, you know, when you start noticing when your pager goes off at 2 a.m. and you're like, ugh, you know, I throw it out a window or whatever. You know, As that's, opposed to, yes, a yes, baby's exactly. coming. Exactly. I can yes. help someone with yeah. another problem. Exactly. That is your note to self to be like, perhaps I need a break. Yes. You know, maybe on the next schedule, I need to make <laughs> sure that I do something, whether it's, you know, taking a day or, yes. you know, whatever, giving giving back one of those extra shifts that you might have taken because it, you can burn out and you don't want to because in this profession, you really have to be able to emotionally and and physically and mentally mm-hmm. be there for your patients all the time. Yes. So it's it can be really draining. So maintain that connection. Although I do have to say I'm jealous of your ability to meditate. I have I'm working on that. I've been doing it. I'm working on yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> I start now I'm just like Pavlov's dog with my little bell. Ding ding. I know. And I start I start my meditation that way. And I have a little altar with Buddha. Yeah. That's wonderful. You're the coolest. You're the best. Um, I just incorporate a lot of different things. I mean, I grew up in Christianity. And I incorporate some of that too. Just put it all together and yeah, whatever it, it looks like. Allow for you. it to give it give me what I need. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is like a really great question for Alvin because he's shared so much wisdom with us. What direction would you like to see our profession take? Oh, and I one. know it's a deep one. Yeah, it's a deep one. Yeah. I think I think there are a couple of things. I think that in our profession, I think we need to be paid the the, the for mm-hmm. the work that we do. Yay! Um, <laughs> that's a good. Yes. that's yes. a good start. Yes, that's a very good start. And I've heard and I've spoken to both mid, uh, midwives and student midwives and 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 midwives who are a little bit burnt out. But also, I've spoken to uh, some of my own mentors as well um, in this space, and they say, you know, we we work a lot. We have long hours. We care very deeply, mm-hmm, like yes. you mentioned before. And sometimes we can't let that patient go. You know, it's like, okay, we need to follow their charts. Like, how is the, how are they doing postpartum? Mm-hmm. Like, are they feeling okay? Um, there was just some trauma in their life, and we just just want to make sure that they're okay. And that is not documented. We don't charge for that in terms right, of right. Uh, of that type of work, right? right. Um, and if we stay a little bit longer for our patients, or we are in the room, like so, fifteen minutes, right? Generally, is how long we get for women's health outpatient um, visits. Right, mm-hmm. uh, but if we stay the extra five, or we call them on our own time, mm-hmm. that's that's time out of your day, right? right. But do we get paid for that? And I think that that's important uh, in terms of uh, how we should be compensated, and also our contracts on in terms of you know revenue, relative value units, mm-hmm. in terms of right. um, 
like uh, like all of that stuff. Like, are we, we should we really be you know calculating our compensation based upon relative value units or fair market value? Mm -hmm. When in, in in truth, when we bill, we don't bill for a lot. You know, right. in terms of our primary care. Right. Um, our, our primary care hours, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like our RVUs is one or two for mm -hmm. each of the codes that we use. And for those that might not be aware, we bill according to certain Medicare, Medicaid right. code coding that that that's kind of fixed, right? Um, and those things I think shouldn't be used to determine a midwife's compensation, or, or if you are going to use them to determine a midwife's compensation, where is your data? Like, what data are you using to determine how much I should be paid, right? Yeah. And then you should also then also allocate administrative time for us as well, uh, in terms of um, as part of our compensation. You know, like mm -hmm. our administrative time is a very big part of our mm -hmm. time to follow up on lab results, to yep. speak with patients outside of working hours, to be on call. So compensation as a that big part uh, needs to change. I think motor free education is another piece of it as well. I think we need to have more midwifery schools mm -hmm. um, and also the barriers to entry to those midwifery schools. Um, no, I wouldn't say lessen. I think the, it's important to have quality providers, you know, mm -hmm. that are trained properly. That's very important to keep a certain standard uh, with regard. Because what we do is, you know, sometimes it's it's we don't want to make a mistake. I guess right. that's really the important mm -hmm. aspect of it. But at the same time, though, to navigate you know, the state system, the federal system, the three different types of midwives and how we get accredited, mm -hmm. um, the costs to get the accreditation, our DEA license, mm -hmm. our MPI license, and uh, to take the tests as mm -hmm. well. I think all of those are barriers um, as, as well as, you know, how to get into midwifery school. You know, mm -hmm. it took me two years and one year of applications to be able to apply, but not everyone has the ability to put their life on hold or go right. part time. And a lot of applications cost money, yes. and so you're putting mm -hmm. out so much up front. Yeah. And yeah. in order to have more representation, so, you know, more people of color, mm -hmm. more black midwives, more Asian midwives, mm -hmm. more mm -hmm. LGBTQIA plus, you know, midwives, I think all of that is absolutely, it's a it's huge barrier. And we need to be able to, I don't know, have more midwives and have them be of of all walks of, of life. I want to know who didn't want to scoop you up on the first go round because <laughs> they need a talking to. No, I'm just kidding. Yes. Well, well, you know, like that's life. Right? There is failure. Right. Failure, right. failure is part of life, right? Like you have to be able to pick yourself by the bootstraps and say, okay, it didn't work out. Okay. Or this school didn't want me. Or this is not, it didn't, I, like I, I failed, you know. Like, you are where you're supposed yeah. to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that's how Absolutely. I've always looked at mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. And I have to, especially as a person of color, that. Things happen sometimes because they should happen because I failed. And sometimes things happen because people don't like the way I look. Mm -hmm. And so um, I just say to myself, I am where I'm supposed to be. Or this is where this put me because I need to be there for whatever reason. Maybe I, I figure it out. Maybe I don't figure it out. But as long as I just keep moving myself forward, um, sometimes a little bit back and then some more forward, yeah. then I feel like, you know, we're... we're being successful. Yeah. My mom always says, if it's not okay, then it's not the end. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think in that the that's... end, everything will be okay. And if it's not, then yeah, that's how um, my family, they say that then it's not over. Yeah. yeah. 
have contingency plans, have backup plans. Path to success is different for everyone, right. and it's not in a straight line, right. as we've been told many, many times. Um, and and just talk, you know, have a discussion. Like like you have issues. Like there will be issues and and problems with colleagues, and you're right. gonna butt heads. And and just just remember that uh, we all come from a place that where we want to do well or mm -hmm. do well by our patients. Mm -hmm. Um, and and. And the ideological divide is very, very wide in this country right now. And I think it's important that we still communicate with one another and not just hold so tightly to our own beliefs that we've lost sight of being able to listen to someone else as open well. Open minds, mm -hmm. open minds and hearts, I think, are very important to practice. Absolutely. And to just be a decent human being. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Oh my gosh. Well, Alvin, thank you so much. This, this was has been amazing. Amazing. It, it has been amazing. But this conversation, I knew that it would be fine just from chatting with you a little bit. I'm glad we finally got to bring it to fruition because the <laughs> pandemic and we had many delays and so, so forth. And so I'm glad that we were finally able to have you come and share with us. It has been an enlightening and really warm experience. Um, I'm looking forward to see the places you'll go. Absolutely. Me too. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you again. Thank you both. It's been a, a big privilege to be able to speak to both of you. Oh, thank you. Do you have anything you'd like to add before we wind up? No, I don't think so. No. I think this was, uh, I think we'll just, I think it's fine it's to leave great it here. Place to, yeah. to end. <laughs> we'll just let the cards fall where That's they may. awesome. Um, <laughs> when, when folks listen to this episode, definitely share with your friends and family and have them tune in as well because it's rich. Um, we'd like to thank um, Bail Bob Tree Studios, uh, Kenny Blackwell, our composer, our musical composer, uh, Eamon and uh, Claudia, our producers, and Rev Kev, our friends, family, and all of you who make this podcast possible. Yep. Please be sure to subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Google Play, or wherever you listen. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at The Midwife Crisis Podcast. And please email us. We love to get those emails at midwifecrisispodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, don't judge a book by its cover. After you wash your hands, don't judge a book. <laughs> and never stop learning. Bye. Bye. Bye.